You're listening to Rock Nation Real Talk, brought to you by The Rock Center, located in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Here's your host, Stephen Wilson. Well, hello and uh, welcome to another episode of the Rock Nation podcast. And uh, my name is Steve Wilson, and I'm here at The Rock Center. And it's it's my privilege to introduce uh, two people that are, are from the Cedar Rapids community. And uh, many of you that have already been uh, listening and, and watching the podcast know that uh, a couple of months ago, uh, Rochelle Chase was on, and Rochelle has written a, a couple of books on the subject of uh, Buxton, Iowa. And uh, over just some research and that, we were we identified that there's a, a strong connection to Buxton, Iowa, to the Cedar Rapids uh, community here. And so, um, and one of these individuals I happen to know, and that's Paula Garner. And so Paula, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Steve. And uh, we also have uh, a relative of hers, and that is Bev Taylor. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh-huh. Excellent. Welcome, and thank you both for, for being here with us. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> so it's my understanding, again, that you have a, a, a personal connection uh, to, uh, to Buxton. So um, maybe, Paula, just introduce yourself and, and share a little bit of, of your connection, and then we'll, uh, we'll turn it over to Ben as well. All right. Thanks, Steve. Well, basically, um, Bev is the historian of the family and uh, the guardian of all the data. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the connection that we have was I was raised by my great grandmother and along with my other siblings here in Cedar Rapids. And um, my great grandmother is his grandmother. Mm -hmm. And so I lived with her until I went off to college. And so I, um, understand that she was born in Muchaconic County mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. they migrated here from Virginia. And in that process, um, I, I found out some historical data. One time when she was older, I had never asked her information about her past and she never really shared a lot of it. And one day when she was lucid, she just started talking and I didn't have any paper. So I have this... <laughs> paper plate I went in the kitchen and grabbed and started writing notes that she was telling me about her past and the things that happened in the family and all of her siblings and when they came from uh, Muchaconic to Ankeny, Iowa, and then they came from Ankeny to Cedar Rapids. And so I have some of those things and then the things that she did. um, And then I went back and looked at some of the history from Buxton And I see that my grandmother, my great grandmother used to keep borders. And that was a part of the heritage that was a part of Buxton. So I can see that she bought that here with her, that that's what women did when they didn't work as another means to bring income into the house. And, um, but those, those are the extents of the things that um, she was also was a minstrel who went around singing and different places in Iowa with other people like Edith Atkinson, and that they're all passed away at this point. Um, but she was born in 1902 as far as the records show. Um, she was kind of concerned because they didn't keep all the records accurate back at that time. Mm-hmm. But we do have a census from 1900. Was that right? That mm-hmm. census from 1900 that shows when her and her family came into Iowa and they were migrants of Virginia. So that's the extent 
for, for the most part of my knowing of, of our connection with Buxton. And um, then I'll let Bev go ahead further because I know he has more detail. And uh, so, so Paula, before I, I get to Bev, um, did, did she happen to share any stories about her time there or just, just the, the, the dates and things of that nature? No, she didn't, she didn't go back to anything specific to um, where she came from. I, I think it's interesting that from the history I know of Iowa and minorities and things of that nature, that in Buxton, it wasn't as, um, there was segregation, but it wasn't as uh, bad as it was in other parts of the country. And one of the things from my perspective, and my mother died when I was nine and we had, there were five of us and she took us in. And in that process, she never, never spoke ill of people of different races or anything. And she never raised us to. But when I think back over my life and how she never, ever said anything, I don't know if that was just to keep evil out of her mouth and not pass it along. <laughs> You know, because uh, I'm sure that she experienced and saw things that were not, uh, you know, that were not pleasurable during that time period being born in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. So, but again, I think at this point, Bev probably has more information since he's a lot younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Bev, take, take it away, sir. Yeah, I'm, I'm a half generation, I guess I should say, ahead of, of, of Paula. <laughs> And I remember my grandmother quite well. And one of the things that Paula just brought up about the, the census and so on, and some of the controversy about records being kept back in those days, reminded me of the fact that my mother or my grandmother celebrated her birthday on June 2nd for years and years and years. And my mom and dad got married on June 2nd to honor her birthday being on that day. And when she got ready to get her social security, she found out that that, that birthday was not correct, <laughs> that she was actually born in October. Mm -hmm. Mention of things that were happening in Buxton. I recall as, as a youngster that they had Buxton picnics in Des Moines mm -hmm. at, I think it was Riverside Park. And I can remember the people gathering for those events. And as far as actual reiterations of things that actually happened in Buxton, I can remember my dad talking about the YMCA's in Buxton and how free they felt as far as, um, they had no concept of segregation. They actually grew up as very young kids in Buxton, and when they moved to Cedar Rapids, my dad went to Roosevelt, uh, which is now junior high school, and in fact, when he went, it was a junior high school, and I have pictures of the 1926 Roosevelt track team, and there are probably four or five Blacks on that team, and the rest of the probably 75 people of course, were, uh, uh, were majority races. Mm -hmm. The point that I'm making is that as, as very young children, they didn't experience segregation and they experienced very little here. Now, the other issue 
that um, Paul kind of touched on was that when they left Buxton, they moved to um, a place called Kearney, Iowa. It's a, it's a, in fact, it's just been re reincorporated or, or incorporated in the last 10 years or so, but it's a little community between Des Moines and Ankeny. And they moved to a place called Our Labor. It's O-R-A-L-A-B-O-R. -O yeah, There's a yeah. main street in Ankeny now that, that is named Our Labor. Mm -hmm. uh, about Our Labor and 14th Street, there is a cemetery and a, and a very small road that turns off of our, uh, off of our labor. And there still is a very, in fact, the church is still there. That was the center of that community. And all these people that live there came from Buxton to our labor. And a lot of that cemetery holds uh, hundreds of uh, relatives that, that, that uh, were born in, in, um, in Buxton and eventually moved to our labor. Now the point of moving to our labor, there was a, there was a, coal, coal, mine, a coal mine in this place called Kearney. And I can remember when my grandfather one time took me to Des Moines and the, the train used to run along East 14th and there was a big, a, a, pie, a slack, I guess you would call it, a half of a mountain. And my grandpa would point and say, that's where we used to mine at. Mm -hmm. um, I think that one of the things too that I knew from the history of Buxton was that the coal mine um, fell apart in the early 1900s, like 1917, 1915 that was probably what prompted them to move from Buxton exactly. into the next coal mining company, which would have been in um, our labor. And I remember the picnics as a little girl going there too, but I didn't have any idea why that was just what we did on the 4th of July was go to Buxton and have this big picnic with all these people that were, I thought were my relatives. And in some case they probably were, but they also, it was a community uh, gathering of all the people that came from Buxton to the area. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, as you um, individuals moved up here, and, and you were sharing, uh, Bev, about your father and and his experiences there. Um, how did that transfer over to his life here? As far as what what he experienced there in. Uh, Buxton with no segregation or limited and, and seemingly a, a, um, a very good place to, to live for, for all. What, what I can really remember about the atmosphere that my dad and my uncle and my aunt who were youngsters in Buxton and actually were schooled here in Cedar Rapids was that education was one of the most important things in their lives. It was as if they knew that there was a way to make themselves better. And education was one of the things that, uh, education and hard work, they, they, um, they felt as if that the extent of your life could be judged by the effort that you put into it. And, 
I, I, I think that I remember um, that type of advice as a youngster that I got from them and the way that they lived their lives uh, exemplified that. My uncle Art was one of the first graduates from Cole and he actually loved Iowa and he really wanted to stay here. But at the time when he graduated in the, uh, I would say the early thirties or the mid thirties, they were not hiring black teachers here. Mm -hmm. I've written an article, I'll have to share it with you sometimes that I have posted on the Gazette several years ago that told about his story where he left Iowa and went to Evansville, Indiana and became a, a, a teacher and a coach. And, and, and he was successful to the point of having an all-state team, although it was at that time, Indiana was still, I can't say it was totally segregated because they were playing, but at any rate, he became a successful teacher and ultimately ended up as the Dean of, Stu- the dean of Students at uh, Shasta College in Redding, California. My dad went on to be a supervisor at Pennington Ford, as were a substantial number of the employees at Pennington Ford, black employees, I should say, that were from families that originated from Buxton. The number of families here in Cedar Rapids that originate in Buxton is astounding. I have a, a, a blog site called African-American footprints in Cedar Rapids. And I have several families denoted on that that all originated in Buxton. But it's it's astounding about the number of families that are still here that had their origins in Buxton. Are there lessons learned from there that we obviously need to learn again or uh, apply again here in, uh, in this community, this, this state? You know, what, I go on Facebook, I'm not, I'm not real proficient at it. <laughs> and and I, I sign on to this, uh, uh, I guess, posting that's something about Cedar Rapids in the 50s and 60s. And very often I see, you know, posts on there and a lot of the posts go back to showing uh, uh, the, the school system as it was in the in the twenties and thirties. And somebody posted a picture about athletes. And at that particular time, there was a lot of of, uh, of controversy about uh, school integration and so on. So I call myself trying to maybe. Uh, underhandedly to educate those people that were posting on, on, on about the school systems in the 20s. And I posted that picture of the Roosevelt Junior High track team in 1926 that mm-hmm. showed that it was fully integrated. And I got a lot of response from it. People were, oh, we didn't realize that. We didn't realize that. But the point that I think needs to be made is that Buxton exemplifies what society could be without the undercurrent of of, uh, uh, systematic racism. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. From some of the history that I read about Buxton, um, they did have their segregated community, Slovaks and Swedish and Black and, and uh, there, but it didn't seem to be representative of what was happening in the rest of the nation. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that that point, and I think that carries over into our backgrounds um, because we just have never, uh, even we being so close to relatives that were born and lived through that era, it was never anything that was transferred down to us that I could ever remember from a negative standpoint, not to trust, not to be a part of, not to, you know, to, to continue the cycle, if you will. Yeah. It, it, has, it, it has a lot to do with what is considered acceptable. Mm -hmm. and, and my understanding was that overt segregation and the attitudes were not acceptable in Buxton. And, and those people that came from there always had, were, were, were uh, brought up to, 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 to accept that as a way of life. And when, when, you, when you go into the uh, contemporary society where things that are considered acceptable are not and and they're negative things that are considered acceptable mm -hmm. and are, are, are not um, dealt with then we you end up with the, the type of controversies that we have now mm -hmm. and i think this is a, a an example of the the civil rights laws and so on that were passed uh, even though there may be people who may not like you, and my dad used to say this all the time, it, it, I don't care whether they like me or not, it's just that as long as they stay out of my way. So the acceptance of bad behavior sometimes leads to what I consider systematic uh, 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 racism. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that people can be sitting in a room and if it's a, a room full of Caucasian people and there are racial jokes told and everybody laughs and no one says anything, mm -hmm. and that's considered relatively acceptable. Right. But when, when, when someone would stand up and say that, or especially if someone of, of, in a position of power mm -hmm. say that that, is no longer acceptable, all of a sudden things change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, so it's, it's calling forth not only individuals, uh, and I think uh, um, uh, Lucretia Berry, I don't know if you're familiar with her, Lucretia Berry, uh, but, but she had, um, I had had her on a, an earlier uh, episode and and she was talking about the fact that yeah it's it's not it's not sufficient to be to say I'm not racist but you need to be anti-racist so it's it's not sufficient to simply say oh I wouldn't tell that joke uh, what needs to happen to your point Bev is that you need to it should somebody else share that you need to rise up and say that's not acceptable 
Is that that's kind of what you're saying? Basically, yes. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's uh, saying nothing sometimes can basically be uh, 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 not necessarily a positive uh, acceptance of it. But if you if you don't say anything, then it, it's it, it's it's yeah it, yeah complete. That's the word that uh, yeah. And 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 uh, we're all guilty of that. Uh, Caucasians or Blacks have said in situations where things have been said that simply are uh, racist. Mm -hmm. And and, um, everybody just doesn't say anything. So therefore it continues on. Mm -hmm. I think where it has to come to a point where in a situation where you encounter a racist attitude or comment, you have to stand up and say that's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. It's coming. It, it, it's it's coming. It it uh, sometimes the the, uh, the I for the lack of better word, sometimes the opportunity that comes to uh, where where you have to put yourself in that situation. Sometimes you just say this is not worth it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not worth the the effort to be to be all of a sudden the one single person that is saying, "Hey, what, this is not acceptable." So you therefore you you just let it go, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a little bit off base from Buxton, but I think Buxton exemplifies uh, 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 an aurora or an atmosphere where negative racial uh, systematic segregation was not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That well, is a- you've lived in a community. Um, what, what do you, do you see things that, that, that need to happen? I mean, what's your sense of, of the community itself with regards to racial relations, et cetera? Uh, as far as Cedar Rapids is concerned? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of unconscious biases that are still resident. Um, You obviously have people that are more vocal and verbal. Um, I I think that most of the area here, people are complicit just because it's the law, but there's still a lot of undertones and a lot of, uh, uh, how would I say it? it's resident, but it's kind of cloaked, if you will, uh-huh. uh, in, in people's minds. It's cloaked from their perspective, but for those people that are alert and as they say woke, we can see between the lines and then it's between, it goes back to what Bev was saying, you decide, you make a decision, am I going to uh, get involved and make a statement or am I going to say that this is just not uh, something I want to engage in at this time, because this is not the place. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there, and there still is always people that have this perception. Some see it um, worse than others see it. And then there becomes tension within their own racial community as to our perception of what is not being acceptable or, or what we're accepting or being complicit to. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think it all has to go back to what 
images and what was spoken through your family line and how right. you used to see things through your own lenses. I mean, I can find, I mean, you can find faults in anything if you look at it close enough. One of grandma's sayings always was, if you want to, you look for something, or what was it? You dig, you dig, if you're digging hard enough, you're going to find something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And, that, and that's not to say that racism is not an issue here. That's not what I'm right. saying at all. But it's just the idea that I think our lenses and our background are really what facilitates and promotes the um, attitude that we have about what we see and when we should stand up and rise up against. Uh -huh. Yeah, my, my perspective on that is that a lot of the racial attitudes are the result of people in positions of power. For instance, if you, let's just to, to, to kind of maybe to be a little specific, let's take real estate. Uh -huh. For years and years and years, my dad was a supervisor at Pennington Ford, made good money. When we tried to buy a house, we couldn't buy houses where we wanted them. And in fact, this is re related to the, the situation with Dr. Harris. And the issue that that involved was that the people in the real estate business at that time controlled this attitude about the positives and the negatives of integration, the redlining situation and so on. But once once and, and these people were the ones that control the attitudes of the rest of society. Mm -hmm. And once they were put into a position where their attitudes were a violation of the civil rights laws, all of a sudden people were, were now able to not exhibit their attitudes of segregate of, 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 of racism and so on because the law said you can't do it. Mm -hmm. It put these people in positions of power up against the wall by saying, well, your attitudes are at an end now and, and they will not be able to influence the rest of society. And, and, and basically it even comes back to today where the attitudes that we're seeing of violence and racism were perpetuated by the leadership that we had. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it has to start with the leaders. If you have a leader, and, and, and we, we, we touched on that when we talked about originally about Buxton, that the leadership of Buxton said, hey, we're not gonna have that. So whether or not there were people who liked it or didn't like it, they had to go along with it and the society at that point exhibited the positives of, of, uh, of the lack of that kind of, of, of attitudes. Mm -hmm. A lot of it has to do with the leadership that we get. Yeah. yeah. And people, once, once, once the leadership is, is bound to doing what is right, the rest of the people go along with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the racism that we are experiencing now is becoming less evident as the leadership is being held to what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. But the main thing that I, that, that my personal feeling is, is that 
when you have the leaderships that uh, that uh, perpetuates systematic racism, it will continue because the, the the general population is going to go along with what they consider leadership. Yeah. So what you need is you need uh, a leader to stand for what's right, and then if not, people to hold them accountable, and and, and vice versa. It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so, hey. I want to I want to thank you both for for uh, being with us today. And if we need to do a second one, we'll do a second one. But uh, I really appreciate you uh, connecting with us and sharing again not only um, just your connection with with Buxton, but also kind of addressing um, current day and uh, what you see as is kind of you know some of the lessons learned there and and where we need to be applying them here. So. Uh, Paula Garner, Bev Taylor, thank you again so much for being on uh, on Rock Nation, and thank you for being a, a part of the Cedar Rapids community and, and speaking out on, on this issue. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed our show. For more information, please log on to www.therockcenter.org.